welcome to the Edge Pierce podcast. Um, man, I got some extraordinary guests with me tonight, and I am super excited about that. So, enough about me. Uh, we got the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. What's happening, Black Man? What's going on? What's going on, man? Good to be here today. It's an interesting day. Yes, sir. It's good to have you. And we got the incoming, the incoming, <laughs> not the outgoing, but the incoming. CEO uh, of the National Charter Collaborative, uh, Miss Naomi Shelton. How you doing, sis? I'm doing pretty well. I mean, you know, it took a lot to get here, but we're here. We are definitely here. Uh, and what we're going to do about being here, uh, God only knows. But uh, if you're in these comments, please like, share, uh, do whatever you got to do to try to get this notarized or whatever, because we're in here. So um, an EdSec has been uh, selected. But I feel like throughout this, so we're not going to get to him first, right? I want to talk about how black women have been disrespected in this process, right? Any feelings about that? All of the feelings. All of them. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All of the feelings. So I'll just start off and say that um, I think the election results from 2016 and the election results from 2020 are illuminating in multiple ways. Uh, A particular demographic that is not melanated makes very particular decisions. And that 55% this go round um, was very deliberate about cutting black women, Afro-Latina women off at the knees to make sure that they were never even uh, fully considered. And they were able to prop up um, a candidate who, you know, by facade, seems to be uh, a black aligned individual. And we know that that is not true. So uh, they did their job really well and made sure that we did not even consider uh, black women in this process. So, so uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you, but so, sir, you were, uh, you were pretty adjacent uh, to this conversation. I saw several tweets come from you about just this whole process or whatever. So what was your take on just how black women were treated? Um, unfortunately, the same way they're always treated in education. You know, if if they, if you speak in truth to power, then you're a threat to the system. So therefore, those inside the system, we know, we know who makes up the majority of our profession. They just they come out, they attack. It's, it's like wolves. You know, if they don't if they don't agree with you, if they don't if you're not of their guild, meaning they haven't given you their stamp of approval then they will attack and they'll they'll use anybody. <laughs> you know, they'll use black people, they'll use, you know, other whites, supposed allies, anyone who subscribes to their group think to take down anybody who's a threat to the system, or more importantly, anybody who wants to uplift marginalized communities. And that's really what it's all about. And they continue to do that. Yeah. So so I'm with you, right? And I'm feeling your energy. Um, and it feels like, but see, so here, here's my question, right? As, as a former union member, right? I feel like I can speak on this because I am a former member of the Baltimore teachers union. Right. And so as a former, because I just saw, I just saw headlines, uh, former AFT, uh, every, everybody who taught is a member of a union, right? Yeah. Basically or whatever. So you're all former members of a union if you taught somewhere. Right. Yeah. So as a former member of your union, my question becomes, What's up with the rank and file? So Naomi just talked about the makeup. She just, you know, no, no, seriously. She just talked about the makeup of the teaching field, right? And so we got about 8%, let's say 8 to 10%, right? That are that are melanated, that you don't hear nothing from when things like this happen, right? So how does that work? And I'm not putting anybody on the spot. Because I'm here with y'all. I'm sweating it out with y'all, right? But I need to know where they at. Because I ain't seen nothing. You asked, yeah. I've never been a part of a union, so I'm going to go ahead and, and pass this to, to Rob. <laughs> uh, where are they at? Um, some of them are monitoring their own interests. You know, they want they want to be in the room. They want to be included. Some of them are <laughs> actively 
Oh, man. He's going to choose his words. I'm going to take it off you. I'm going to take it off you. I'm going to choose my words wisely. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Some of them are actively working to undermine black women. Who child. Who? Some of them are actively working to undermine black women, not calling names, not calling. Yeah, no, understood. Out, but. But see, but, but so so here, here's my point, and I'm glad you answered that question the way that you answered it, right? It's because black women got a whole lot of things working against them, right? So you know, you got you got you got the oppressive system, right? Which is why critical race theory is prominent in research, right? So you got the oppressive system because everybody knows, or everybody that's able to, I guess, uh collect a thought knows that the system is built off of racism, right? So you got inherent racism, then you got the infighting among uh, among us, right? So that's the kicker for me because like it seemed like there was a civil war amongst black folks where we couldn't collectively get ourselves together in order to get behind one candidate. So it's, Nate, you wanna so, touch on this? So I think there were groups of black people who were being very thoughtful about this. They were um, having ongoing conversation, ongoing dialogue. Um, but most of those people, to, to my understanding, were in the camp that I and you belong to. Um, so there were coalitions of uh, chapters of larger civil rights organizations. There were um, charter leaders uh, that were being thoughtful about this. And they did put forth a group, a really strong group of names. But then you have the major Crows organizations or civil rights um, legacy organizations that were just, just in different places. So where I formerly worked, United Negro College Fund, UNCF, uh, they put forth the name of a, um, an elected official uh, who was being very strategic as well. Uh, you have NAACP who, and Urban League who were focused on some of the other uh, secretary seats, cabinet seats. So there, there wasn't a lot of coordination in terms of the, the broad stroke of the black community, but our niche was very, very strategic in, in terms of putting forth names that were, you know, met a set of criteria, that uh, they were thoughtful, they were inclusive. Um, and we had rows and like literally levels to this. Um, so we had first round picks. We had, if that doesn't work, here's another person. If this doesn't work, here's somebody else. So th it was really thoughtful, um, but no, we were not on the same page. Right. And I think that a lot of times when we're not on the same page, it kind of cripples us. So one of the things that we don't do when we ask these questions is that we don't ask teachers like what they want. Right. And so I know it's a little late for us to come to you, sir. But like based <laughs> off of your teaching circle, what kind of candidate were you guys looking for to be at the at, at, at the head of the um uh, at, at set? Well, um, I mean, I wrote my op ed and that's really my opinion you know and one thing i've discovered is you know as teachers your opinion is your opinion you know a lot of teachers have opinions that are detrimental to our children a lot of teachers have opinions that are selfish motivations and so i just wanted somebody who cared about kids i didn't want anybody politically aligned i wanted somebody with a history of results with black and brown children somebody who's had experience at every level of education, you know, and somebody who would value teacher voice. You know, I think teachers, we, we have a great voice, but at the same time, you have to have someone who's willing to stand up for students over teachers. Because sometimes I think a lot of teachers are motivated by self-interest. And so sometimes you have to say, hold up, your self-interest does not outweigh the interests of the students. And so I wanted somebody who valued teacher voice but also could stand up and say, this doesn't benefit students. So therefore I need you all to fall back a little bit. And somebody that's respected in that. And the reality is you will never get a person of color who will get that type of respect because of what of the uh, simple, the demographics of our profession. You know, when we, we stand up and we say things and we push back, there's immediately it's gonna come out of everywhere, left field, I mean, I've seen people attack my man all day and it's like, you just met the dude. You don't even know anything about him, but immediately you're attacking them. And so that lets me know that your interest isn't completely about students. Your interests are about 
yourself, you know? And so we really need somebody who can, has the respect of teachers, but also has the backbone to stand up when teachers need, teachers wants outweigh students' concerns. Right. Yo, that, that, that that's an amazing answer, man, because like I, I always think to myself, I'm like, all right, well, you know, will we ever uh, in this lifetime put kids first? Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely aiming towards that. And so, Nate, like you've been playing the background, you've been behind the scenes or whatever. Right. But uh, I don't think anybody has like actually asked you what candidate, what kind of candidate you thought would be like a, a, a really good pick. So I'm asking you now. So I would start off and say that, of course, the things that Rodney laid out uh, were uh, top of mind. We also uh, thought about having someone who, had, of course, had uh, leadership experience uh, either in the traditional uh, public schools or in the charter sector. Um, someone who was going to be thoughtful about if they were not of the charter uh, niche, that they would be thoughtful about what is that in the the innovation in schools look like, especially coming uh, through and out of the pandemic. Um, someone who would be thoughtful about um, how the unions were portraying uh, charter schools. So there was very specific language that they used um, to say uh, for-profit charters. But if you're not differentiating or if people aren't, aren't aware, they would just assume that all charters are uh, for-profit. And so someone who would be thoughtful about like resetting that conversation and being um, very cognizant of how they would present that language. But for the most part, I think what uh, Biden laid out gave us a great framework. Um, someone who was taught and been in the classroom. Um, of course, we, we wanted a pendulum swing from what uh, we just had in the previous secretary. But we also wanted someone who was familiar with the uh, reforms and the, the thought process during the Obama administration. So there's a lot there. There are a lot of moving parts, but for the most part, someone who cares about uh, students and families. So, so uh, sir, uh, you've been very critical of the outgoing uh, education secretary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, so what, what are some, what are some of your cr criticisms and do you think that, you know, they're just. To me, it's just a, aloofness and arrogance, uh, uh, simply not caring. You know, sometimes, you know, and I've met her, I've sat down in the room and had a conversation with her. And you can tell when nothing you say matters to someone. You can tell what their main interest is, you know. And so I felt that she never really cared about education. I felt like she she had alternative motives, ulterior motives, whether that was fattening her pockets, whether that was to in a sense, an extension of the administration to that unnecessary cruelty toward the underclass and towards minorities in America. That she was a true extension of the Trump administration. And so I, I get frustrated when people say, oh, she was an idiot. She's the, she don't know this, she don't know that. No, there was an intentionality behind her cruelness. And it's really, it's sort of like you, you try to take away from the danger that someone like her possesses when you say that she's she's nitty, when you dismiss her as being stupid. Nah, that's definitely not the case. She knew exactly what she was doing with every decision that she made, and it was not for the betterment of children. And so it's, I'm trying to, Put this in a nice, nice way. I was stuck in the room with her for 30 minutes, her and Mike Pence. That was the worst 30 minutes of my life. But every question she asked was offensive. Mm. You know, from, hey, how how'd you go to college? How did you pay for college? You know, all these sorts of questions you know, and I told her, you know, I, you know, I was entertained at first. I work, you know, I work for Circuit City. Oh, then she goes into the story about how she knows the guy who started the business. And it was just a disconnection because your world does not matter in my world. So right now I'm trying to make small conversation to seem as if I care about you. But the reality is I don't. I'm just here because I got called here. As a matter of fact, she was late to the ceremony. She oh. was really late. 
and I wasn't even supposed to speak, but you know, I said, can I speak? And she said, yes, because she had no idea what was going on on the day-to-day -day operations. She just issues cruel initiatives and the department's supposed to follow through. And so it was just a really, really weird, weird day. And you see the dysfunction, I think on Twitter today, myself and a cohort, we were um, having a discussion, like in the middle of our ceremony, a Pinterest re recipe popped up on the screen, just complete unprofessionalism. But at the same time, it was all because I don't care about the minute details of education. My job is to just be an extension of cruelty of this administration. And that's who Bessie DeVos was. Man, you kind of summed it up in, in, in a couple minutes, and I appreciate that. So everybody who's listening, now you know who our former Secretary of Education is, and it's coming from the National Teacher of the Year. So this ain't coming from somebody that's in your child's school that's just a regular teacher. This is the <laughs> National <laughs> Teacher of the Year. It's only one of them. It's about 150,000 <laughs> of the other ones, but there's only one of him. <laughs> All right. So, Nate, real quick, I want to touch on this because you, you, you said it, right? So for-profit charter schools, can you explain to the audience what for-profit uh, charter schools are? I don't pay attention to them, so I don't really know. I'll say this. Uh, for-profit <laughs> charter schools are, uh, uh, they, of course, like, they don't use the, they, they use public dollars, but in a way that's, you know, I really don't know. I'll just put it that way. I don't know. They, yeah. People making money off of black and brown kids. Um, I know that it's prevalent uh, in Florida and Michigan, uh, of course, where the former secretary or the outgoing secretary uh, resides. Um, and those organizations are generally either, uh, I'll put this as plainly as possible, segregation institutions. So um, they operate sort of like private schools um, mm -hmm. and make sure that they don't, they're not inclusive in who their student body uh, is. But they're not of the there. We call ourselves charter cousins. They're not in the family. Gotcha. Understood. So then the next question becomes, right, because you are the incoming CEO <laughs> of the National Charter Collaborative. And so National Charter Collaborative, uh, there's over 400 school leaders that are uh, adjacent to you guys. Uh, talk about those schools, those mom and pop charter schools and like, you know, what 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 your goal is for them? So the leaders that we, the network of leaders that uh, NCC represents are individuals who decided, you know, this is a pathway, alternative uh, pathway for me to preserve, pres preserve what I believe to be um, the uh, education process in, in the context of uh, charter schools. So you have someone who comes before an authorizer, has written up a proposal for a school and, uh, you know, goes through a vetting process and that school is voted on and they are able to autonomously run their schools. Um, they make the decision uh, either early on or as they uh, move forward in their process to either expand their schools uh, or to stay in one, uh, stay at, at one site in one grade band or even if it is a K through 12 school, they still have a very small footprint in terms of the larger uh, education uh, ecosystem that they operate. Uh, and a lot of those people are black and brown individuals who have either been in the traditional uh, world or they are just highly committed to thinking about education in, in an innovative way. Um, here in DC, we have several uh, single site, but also uh, pretty large uh, operators, CMOs. Um, and those people have been committed to this work for more than 20 years. Um, I also serve as an authorizer for charter schools here in the district. Um, I will be uh, recusing myself from the votes related to any of the schools that the, their uh, leaders are associated with NCC. But uh, just last year, or year before last, because I don't know what, you know, what year are we in? We're in a time warp. Um, <laughs> we just approved uh, schools, five schools, uh, or yes, five schools and four of them of, uh, led by people of color. Uh, and they open their schools in the midst of a pandemic. Um, so that those leaders are committed in a completely different way. This is not just the work of, oh, I'm a, I'm a uh, principal, but I am the CEO of this entire institution. Um, and so there's a level of commitment that goes above and beyond because the support is, um, is significantly limited. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you for that. Because, you know, I know some of those schools in D.C. Shout out to those uh, uh, public charter schools in D.C. that are working their behinds off, that are outperforming the district schools. But I want to make this point. Right. Uh, my show, none of the shows that I'm on are anti public school. Mm-hmm. We are pro public school. We just want good schools and we want folks to be able to choose what schools their kids go to. And so schools are not a monolith. And so there's no cookie cutter process for selecting a school. I should be able to pick whatever school I want to go to. or I want my kids to go to. And you should be able to select whatever school you want your kids to go to. That's what energy we're on. Yeah. But Rodney, back to you, because I got you and I got you for about 40 more minutes. I'm about to pick that brain of yours. Um, sir. Are schools bad for black and brown kids? What's what's the answer? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the, all the numbers tell us that that they are bad for our kids. There are public schools, and I get frustrated when people say ed reformer as if it's a bad term. Because the reality is schools are not working for the majority of our kids. You know, one of the things I want to do in Virginia is um, have a conversation about charters. You know, Virginia is a state that is not charter friendly. I think there may be six, five or six, I looked it up last week, five or six public charter schools in the state of Virginia, and all of them are not serving black and brown communities. They're more like magnets, magnet schools. And so I think it's time for the state to have a conversation because the numbers in Virginia are ridiculous. We're talking, we're, we're 20%, less than 20% of the population, but we're fit over 50% of suspensions. You know, the, um, it's a JLOC, which is a, a, a watchdog group. I mean, they've been blasting the state of Virginia in the past, like every month it's a brand new report blasting the state of Virginia. I think two months ago, there was a report that said there was no, there were no African Americans or no people of color. Period. All white people and senior leadership at the Virginia Department of Education. Just last week, they released a new report that said special education in Virginia is terrible, and the group that's getting left behind the most are Black students with disabilities. And so, I really think it's time for a conversation of what can we do to raise our own. You know, Virginia, we're home to, you know, this week we're celebrating Barbara Johns. She was a young lady who led the walkout in Prince Edward that was part of Brown case. And everybody's celebrating because she's about to be in the state capitol. But people aren't realizing she walked out of her school because of their building. She did not walk out of her school because she wanted to be in, she wanted integration. You know, I remember um, John Stokes who walked out with her. He said, um, in a conversation he was having, he was like, uh, the building we had was so bad that when it rained, we went outside to stay dry. That's how bad their building was. And so the whole point of that march, their protest, was a new building. They had a great education. So I think it's time to go back to that spirit. What happened to our great Black schools in the state of Virginia? You know, we look at, you know, just in my city, city of Richmond and along, Armstrong High School, one of the best schools ever, you know, but they've taken all the resources, they funneled out all the all the quality things in the community. And then the other one was Maggie L. Walker, which is now a governor's school that black kids can't even get into. Now this used to be the most the most predominantly successful school for black people in the state of Virginia. And so I think it's time in Virginia we have a conversation, you know, what's best for our children. This is a conversation that needs to be had, you know, amongst uh, NAACP, African-American leadership, also with the Virginia Department of Education, because you're clearly proven that by all statistical measurements that you're doing harm to black kids and brown kids. You know, so it's time to have those conversations in the state of Virginia. And hopefully, you know, we can get those going if we get a, <laughs> if we get a, a black female governor but that'll be highly unlikely because now they 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 kind of manipulated that game and slid in Terry McCullough, the old white governor that we had back into the game. So it's really hard to make progress, but at the same time, I'm gonna keep pushing. We gotta have these conversations about what's best for our kids. It starts in the churches, it starts in the communities, 
then we can take them to the legislative houses because that's really where the action occurs. Agreed. I'm about to share the screen with y'all. Um, where we at? Yeah, because this, this this right here, this this made me chuckle, and, and hopefully it, it, it makes y'all feel the same way here, right? So, um, <laughs> so what we have here is uh, we have um, we have um, so Miss, uh, I'm sorry, Doctor uh, Sharon uh, Contreras was a finalist for uh, for uh, for, for uh, the uh, Secretary of Education seat, right? And so she got blasted by the union because she took a stance uh, that was unpopular to white teachers. I'll say it. Uh, and so in 2014, 95% of teachers in Syracuse, first, when we talk about uh, when we talk about uh, 95% of teachers, we then have to ask this really relevant question. What's the makeup of the teachers? Mm-hmm. Right. That's the first question that we have to ask because, you know, people that listen to this, they just think of teachers as being monolithic or whatever. And, you know, teachers is just all encompassing. But the first question that you have to ask is what is the makeup of those 95 percent of teachers? Right. And so, you know, if you have 95 percent of teachers that have labeled someone or given someone a vote of no confidence based off the fact that they are advocating for, for for black and brown kids to no longer be suspended at uh at astronomical rates then <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say here like how the hell is that a bad thing that's not a bad thing at all <laughs> whiteness is a bad thing right yeah I because they want to send a, they want to send our kid you they they want to send you to the office yeah. then they want to send a follow-up email like what was the consequence for this kid then if the consequence wasn't uh, tough enough. They want to be like, well, why didn't he get this many days, or why didn't she get this many days, as opposed to this? Then they want to follow up about, well, when is this person coming back, and can I sit in on the meeting so that I can rub it in the parents' face even more? It's all kind of shit these teachers be doing that yeah. we don't be calling out. And I'll I'll take that a step further and say that we know that that's based in racism and bias, right? Um, and it happens disproportionately to black males, but it also happens to black females. Um, push out the criminalization of black girls in schools by Monique Morris, Dr. Morris, spells that out and how they over-criminalize and they stigmatize uh, students on a regular basis based on just, I don't know if it's media, I don't know if it's just the thing of they don't look like me, but the idea of these children are not worth me having in this room if they are not complying in the way that I want them to. And they could have the same, uh, they could have the same behaviors as their white peers, but they are going to be punished and uh, disciplined even further. So I, when I think about Sharon as a, a candidate, there were multiple, and I hate to use the term um, box checking, right? But she absolutely fit the profile of what we've laid out uh, earlier in the show. But she also, uh, in her own right, has the qualifications. You know, on a couple of shows that you've done, Ray, you talked about the qualifications of the Baltimore CEO. Um, And this one thing is one of the reasons that uh, the 55 percenters decided to undermine her on Twitter, intentionally undermine her on Twitter. because she wanted to hold people accountable for equity um, and hold people's feet to the fire. And so the idea of people being uh, relegated to, oh, because this person wants accountability or they want equity, they're not suitable for this role. We need to have a family conversation for all the black teachers that are a member of these unions. Trying to tell you. <laughs> and without having that conversation, I mean, I, I'll, make, I'll just say this very matter of factly. When I started working at UNCF, I sat in front of my boss and I said, I want a black TFA. So people think about TFA in this way because it's what? A white-led organization. How do we create a black teacher pipeline? Mm -hmm. Fast forward. I'm thinking about all the ways that teachers unions have undermined what happens with black and brown students here in DC and nationally. Um, Having worked for a mayor who decided, I'm not gonna even have a school board think about this anymore because they have been failing black students. Um, and being our feet being held to the fire of if something goes wrong, he is solely accountable for that. And people now wanting to, you know, shift the context of that conversation. But accountability should not be a bad word. 
And all. the way that it's showing up, we are damning ourselves by saying my job is more important than protecting the children who look like me, who need the most. Um, and so there needs to be a family conversation. And do we need a black teachers union? So yeah. it's, it's funny that you should you should ask that because I just put this out in a let me take the screen off you. I uh, I just put this out in a series of tweets, right? Uh, Baft, Black American Federation of Teachers. <laughs> Yo, what would that look like? What would that the whole dynamics of conversations would change? You know, it, it's it's kind of it's similar to uh, uh, Puffy when he, when he's like, oh, the, the Black People's Party, right? Hmm. And so now they got to consider what you think. Because it's not just monolithic in terms of like we're all together. Like hell no, you got to work for my, you got to work for my interest too now, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what it was prior to board. But Rodney, jump in here. Uh, I'm sorry, prior to Brown versus board. Rodney, jump in here. Well, yeah, I kind of I agree with you, you know, because I'm I'm a member of the union, but you know, one thing I've learned is, you know, going as teacher of the year and going to places and visiting, having conversations. And seeing how sausage is made is not a pretty process, you know. And so it really allowed me a lot of time to just step back and re-examine my relationship with the organization. You know, for example, you know, I remember last year I tweeted about this last week. It was um, I remember they had the national debate, Democratic debate in Pittsburgh last year, about a year ago, and I went. And so when I got there, just you know, a setup from the jump, you know. I'm a black man. I know it's set up from the jump, from the jump. And when I walked into the room, you you just saw the 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 way everything ran, the way everything was set up. That this is not genuine, you know. And then when I saw them having police officers keeping out black and brown parents, you know, yeah. literally armed police officers were standing in the way of parents who just wanted to get in and have a conversation. I just want to. I want to put a, I just. I do want to come back to that though. Wait, wait, wait. There, you, yeah. said, you, you were in Pittsburgh. Yeah, in Pittsburgh. Oh, right? was, was, I know. I didn't know y'all at the time. I didn't know y'all at the time. <laughs> but I remember going there, and I'm on the mindset: if I see police keeping out peaceful black people, yeah. I want to know what those peaceful black people have to say. Because yes. the police officers are tools to maintain white white supremacy. That's and right. so I want to know what are they saying that is so threatening to everybody in this room. And hey, so, so I, and I, I just want to make a quick yeah, point, just aside yeah, no. a footnote. Yeah. So y'all know I live in DC and y'all yeah. know that I like, that was more, and this is not an excuse. This is not me saying that this is, it makes it right. The security protocols that go along with an event of that type, because you have so many elected officials in attendance is ex exceptionally high. They are invitation only and that those invitations should not be distributed by the teachers unions, right? If we're gonna have a conversation about education, then let's talk to all the a wide swath of education organizations. Let's talk to not just AFT and NEA, let's talk to UNCF, Thurgood Marshall, NAFIO. Uh, let's talk to the charter schools that are in that neighbor, in that um, area. Let's talk to parent organizations and that doesn't happen. And how do we push organizations that do receive those invitations to expand who's at the table? So I'm again, it's not an excuse, but it is a it is a reality that when you have events that involve public officials of that level, federal level public officials, security is at an all time high. Right. Um, so that's the only that that's the only footnote that I will add there that it, it, it isn't just simply they were keeping them out. There are security protocols yeah. and we should think about how do we want to play the game? So that when those invitations go out, because I believe AFT, NEA, but also NAACP may have been yes. involved in that, yeah, right? Yeah. So how is it that NAACP doesn't extend that invitation to black members of the community? You know that, you know why. Parents. You know I mean, why. of course. I like Tuesday night better than I like Wednesday night. Go ahead. Keep bringing it, baby. I love it. <laughs> I thought, that's not what I do. Oh, uh, well, it's, it's, it's more palatable here. But, uh, okay. but what I'm saying, though, is being in the room and seeing that is what changed my mind. You know, especially when I said they were like, what are you going to do? We need to capitalize on this. We need, I was like, I'm allowed to tweet the event. And so they was like, oh, we're going to retweet every one of your tweets. My first tweet <laughs> said, why are we keeping charter parents out if this is a true debate about education and equity? 
shouldn't everybody be at the table? Better than it didn't tweet, tweet a single tweet I said that day after that. <laughs> you know, but that, but that's to me that was a question to be asked. If we're truly in this for students, why aren't all parents, all interests at the table asking these questions? Because that's how it was presented to me, and so I went in with that mindset of okay, everyone's going to have a debate and ask questions. But it was just a complete setup by the major groups. And I just, by the end of the day, I was just completely, completely disgusted. And then that night I had dinner with a friend of mine who works in Pittsburgh. And he was talking about how these entrenched union teachers at his school are hurting black kids. And he's trying and can't get rid of a single one of them. And so that day was just like one of those moments, like, let me re-examine my relationship because i understand we can get some good things done but one thing i will not suffer in any organization is group think i'm mm -hmm. always going to think for myself and i'm going to question things and so that really was an opening day just to let me question everything that's going on and use that platform and i've had some interesting conversations in the past week of how i use my platform well, sir, I love how you use your platform. You can always get a retweet from me and, and some good interaction from me on Twitter. And, uh, and, and and you can always come on my show. But listen, so one thing I want to commend you for is on that day in Pittsburgh, you stayed dry. I did not. Yeah. yeah. I was outside in the rain with Sarah, with Sarah oh, Carver yeah. and, 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 uh, and Memphis Lift and, and, and all those parents, man, that were there advocating for kids. Uh, listen, and they weren't advocating for just charter schools. I want to be clear. Yeah. They were advocating for good schools right and so listen here's the deal if you're listening to this and you're pro public school if those public schools were amazing then there would be no charter schools folks wouldn't be looking for an out if those schools were amazing and it's the same thing with charter schools charter schools if you're doing what you need to do then folks wouldn't be transitioning back to public schools right That's so right. i don't just have criticism i don't just have criticism for for, for for public schools i have criticism for all schools that are not doing right by kids and i right? i want to i want to just point out that we we know that all politics is local right so there's also the um the the idea of how charter schools operate in different jurisdictions is local so what happens here in D.C. is completely different than the way that the charter landscape is laid out in New Orleans. But what people do is they take those broad strokes yes. and they have conversations about charter schools as if every, everybody's following the same rule book. Yeah. And they are not. So how are we thinking about accountability? I know that D.C. has been ranked one of the top authorizers in the country when it comes to charter schools for multiple years. And just thinking about how do we take what we know that works best in terms of the measures that we uh, put schools against, how we uh, review them on a regular basis, how we think about the authorization process overall. Like, what does it mean for you to come before the board to, to be authorized to, to, to be issued a charter? And so that and how we think about that, people are thinking about it in this really odd way of what's happening in Chicago is the same as what's happening in California. But what I do know is happening across the board is that teachers unions and George Parker says this every single turn that he is on a panel, that he is in a room talking to elected officials and, and stakeholders. There's an issue around what it means for there to be this large shift in the number of the rank and file and what that means for people's uh, bottom line, what it means for the bottom line of these organizations. Because let's be clear, if charter schools miraculously became unionized and they had the dues, we would be looking at this very differently. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you should mention that, right? Because like I, <laughs> and folks don't know this, so I'm giving you some insider baseball tips, right? My school, the school that I that I'm the superintendent of, right? Uh, my series of, of of schools are all union. They're unionized, right? Mm -hmm. My teachers are unionized, but the, the the key to that is you got to build relationships with your teachers, right? So like you building relationships with your teachers, uh, it, you know, it, it kind of trumps that union in the sense that your teachers are now going to work for kids, right? Yeah. So, like, if you are a school leader, if you're a superintendent over a district that has a powerful union, uh, skip the union, go build relationships with the teachers. That's, right. That's where the power lies. That's exactly right. Um, we've had uh, attempts to unionize schools here in D.C., and the school leaders were like, we know y'all. Like, if there's an issue, we can talk about it, right? Yes. Um, 
but the the idea that people are co-opting the emotional feeling behind things that are happening at the at the school level and being able to like shift that conversation and then talk about it with community members to really undermine how people are operating is it's I've never seen people be so nefarious in yes. my lifetime, right? This is not just a, a thing of um we we believe in this in this institution. They believe in their what what their unions stand for. Yeah. So so not only that, they believe in their way of life, right? Yes. And that's what we don't talk about, right? And so when you <laughs> when you shake things up and you're like, okay, well, you know, your kid ain't gonna be able to go to this private school because you know now your job is at risk and this, that, and the fourth and whatnot, <laughs> then everything shifts. <laughs> Here's the deal, and you know, and I'm gonna get into it, I don't care. Here's the deal with my thing. The the big union groups and the big groups that are supporting all the all the talking points are led by people who don't even have kids. That drives me insane. Mm. You don't even have kids in the school system, right. but you're so bossed to these talking points Ooh. that you are gonna tell the district, you're gonna force the district into doing what you think is either you don't have kids or you have kids but you live in the suburbs and your kids don't go to any of the schools in the city but you want to force black and brown parents and tell them what to do and if they organize then it's a full-scale effort to i mean a full-scale organized effort to attack black parents who yes. attempt to organize in my city i've seen it That's you know people running for school board Oh, you're public enemy number one if you're trying to speak for black parents. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's really, really something we need to start calling out because these organizations are led by people who don't even have a vested interest, but you want to tell everybody else what to do with their children. Come on. Someone in the comments said that black people should uh, own private schools. Yeah, I saw sure. so I, I saw a couple of Reggie's comments. Reggie, thanks for, for checking in with us. Uh, and so why can't we talk more about building our own private schools? Unions are powerful force in school systems. We absolutely agree with that. We kind of touched on this earlier. But Nate, jump in. So what I was gonna say to that is uh we can do that with the funds that our like our, our tax base pays for, and you can start a charter school. Is it a pr private school? Are you not accountable? No, it is not the same as having a private school, but they are, you have the autonomy to build a curriculum that you want, to create a culture, that, an environment that you want, to be able to have the uh, ability to hire the people that you believe are in the best, it will work in the best interest of children. Um, I've seen it work exceptionally well here and in other places. Uh, and Lagra, I, I want to say her last name is Newman, in Nashville, Tennessee, runs a fantastic uh, charter school and operates in a way where she's a single site operator, uh, just like breaking grounds for what yeah. happens with black students. So we don't have to have private schools. Yeah. We don't have to do that because that means that you are trying to, you're trying to climb a mountain with a toothpick versus having per pupil funding because you now have started a school that is backed by the community. And when we think about it that way, so when I hear people that come to the, the charter board meetings that, that, I, uh, that I sit on, and people are like, there's no accountability. I'm asking, when's the last time you went to the DC uh, School Board of Education's meetings? Because that accountability, or where where's the accountability in the conversations and the work that happens at the central office level that you have no idea happened? So the the double speak or the, the, the double talk that happens in terms of like charter schools aren't accountable, I'll say that in, in quotations, but the level of accountability that goes into the bureaucracy that is a school system, people have no idea what's happening there, none whatsoever. And I've seen it here in DC, I've seen it in Baltimore, I've seen it in New Orleans and how that all, that all shifted. And at the end of the day, we should not have to like climb a mountain with a toothpick. We should have public charter schools that allow you to have full autonomy of what happens inside your walls. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. Uh, <laughs> but hey, Reggie came back with another comment that that, that kind of makes sense. He says uh, public schools are big business and their white masters aren't having it. Uh, they keep they have a, a stake by keeping our children out of being competitive in the workforce. Uh, charter schools can be uh, take, taken away from uh, from school boards. And I'm in East Tennessee and these folks ain't trying to 
fund an all black charter. And so I believe that. I, I, yeah, no, absolutely. But see, one of the things I, I also want to touch on with, with, with Reggie and, and, and what he's saying in these comments is that it's 100 percent true. Like we got to be real about this, right? Mm -hmm. But we also got to we 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 got to pick our spots. We got to go to those places that are are more charter friendly in order to set an example, get that data, and then be able to go to these school boards and go to these school districts with data that says that hey, we can work for black kids, and this is what we're doing, and lay it out. And then you know it's it's kind of it's hard pressed for them to turn that down when you got parent support behind you and you got you, you know you got the data behind you in order to say you know this is this isn't just an idea but this is something that has worked and it can work. What what you got to do in a sense is sort of manipulate the system to work for you. That's right. For example, um, I work for those who don't know I worked inside of the juvenile jail in in the city of Richmond, and so we had a successful school strictly because. Nobody gave a damn about black kids locked up. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't give us any oversight. So as black educators, we did what worked for our kids, you know, and lo and behold, literacy increased. They passed, you know, state testing scores increased. All that increased because nobody gave a damn about us. And so we just manipulated that system. And so really what it's about is about learning the system and how to take advantage of it. You know, you pay taxes, you know. Right. <laughs> People need to stand up and say, hey, my tax dollars need to go toward educating my students, that's and, right. I mean, my children. And so, and that's a powerful thing. And so if you organize and you demand, you know, it's, it's gotta come to fruition. And it's not something that's gonna be easy and something that's gonna be overnight because in Virginia, it starts with having to get some laws changed mm -hmm. in order to, to get these schools up and running. but you have to be committed to the struggle. You have to be committed to understanding the system and learning how to make it work for you. Like you said, what you say, mountain with a toothpick. I love that analogy. analogy. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we got to get smarter. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so, so then the question for you back, you Rodney inside the classroom, not talking about outside of the classroom, but inside of the classroom, what's the fix? Right now inside the system, the fix is getting more competent, culturally affirmed teachers of color in the classroom. You're saying a whole lot of big words. Break it down for the lay folk. We need, we need skin folk, not kin, we need kin, kin folk, not skin folk in the classroom. Facts. People who understand the struggle, people who understand right. restorative practices and protecting our kids. The more of them we get in the classroom, the more we can push back against the system. So it's not just one or two or three teachers standing up and arguing in defense mm -hmm. of black kids. It's 10, 11, 12. And so that's, it's power numbers. And so until we get more culturally competent leaders in the classroom, in principalships, in the boardrooms to make these educational decisions, mm -hmm. then the system will always not be in our fate. That's so we just need a numerical take. That's within the system, how to fix it. And I, I do think that there's, um, we. Inside the classroom, but in the broader sense of what happens with teacher prep, um, just re like let's rehaul what that looks like. Let's think about how all of that works. Ray, are you on the uh, the camera? What's going on? Are you producing? Yeah, right. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so I mean, just to, just to, to to voice this over. Technically, I'm really voicing this over. Yeah. How how are we doing teacher prep? Right. How are we thinking about alternative pathways? It should not be that you have to study education to be an educator. You should be able to have a specialty and you should be able to major in whatever it is that you major in. And let's think about what do the all of the barriers that come between black students and uh, their ability to get into uh, school buildings, into the uh, education force. How are we thinking about that? So are we looking at uh, ways to make sure that we can uh, certify teachers outside the bounds of them having to have gone through an education program? Um, how are we solidifying those programs and being thoughtful about what that looks like? So all of those things, I think that it's, it's not just one thing or the other. And that's what my frustration is in hearing from teachers unions. I, my grandmother was a 30 plus year uh, veteran teacher. I truly believe in the teaching profession, but how are we thinking about the teacher profession in a way where we're saying, you have to be able to meet these competencies to be able to be in a classroom. And those competencies include how are you thinking about the cultural uh, foundation for students who do not look like you or the ones who do look like you? 
So I think all of those things just need to be overhauled. It is a it's a huge task, but why teachers unions not having those conversations? Why are they they not being thoughtful about? Well, we know that you all have these critiques of how we go about our work, and here's our these are our solutions and suggestions for what the path is forward. Other than we just want to fight for these particular things, and that's all we're that's all we're gonna do. Ray, you all right over there? I know, right? <laughs> so, um, and I, I think that um, what you said, Rodney, makes complete sense. Having more black teachers in classrooms, but we also recognize and realize that the problem with having black teachers in, in school buildings is really and truly rooted in the praxis not being uh, attainable. Like being able to, to pass the praxis is like running a marathon. And if you've only been running a 5K, then how are you supposed to pass it? Exactly. I don't know if that's true. Baby. Okay, Ray. But I need your um camera to be true. But it's, it's Tuesday, going. not Wednesday. It's Tuesday, <laughs> not Wednesday. So I'll be nice today. <laughs> but uh, you need a, Dr. Fletcher, Tina Fletcher, she she talks about this how there's just the basic the practice exam is really about practice and how schools have kept black people out of classes that require standardized testing out of you know programs that requires how the knowledge of how to take a standardized test mm -hmm. and so therefore that is why we're not passing the practice we have the ability it's just that we've been kept out of that world for so long now we use this test as a gatekeeper to say oh you can't pass it to get in but yet we never prepared you from K through 12 through to be able to do those fundamentals to, to pass this sort of That's right. It's, and then the schools of education don't care. I, I had a conversation with ladies. I was like, what are you doing? You offer a class on helping the, your, your students of color pass the practice. Yes, it's offered during the summer as an elective. I was like, you do know that a lot of teachers and black people are first generation and doing some of their working to go to be able to pay for the spring and fall mm -hmm. semester. Well, it's them. They need to find a way to get through it. I was like, you just put a barrier That's right. in front of your kids that literally is going to cause them to change majors and leave the field of education. That's right. And so until and we actually had this conversation in a state meeting, what can you do? to require schools of education on the collegiate level in Virginia to make practice classes available as a part of their curriculum. You know, how do we change the schools of education? How do we get more culturally competent teachers? How do we keep your professors from walking out of my speeches when I mention the words race, history, and racism? You know, so we really need to start having those types of conversations because that's what it's all about. Bro, I, 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 <laughs> so I, I would rather I would rather uh, we, we take praxis classes than anybody have a class where Diane Ravage is the focus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that coming Reece. before you even said it. When you said before, I was like, here you go. I know what you're about to say. <laughs> it, what, what trips me out about the like biggest cheerleaders on that side of this this conversation is they don't even really like how long did they teach? Right. So what are they upholding? They're really upholding what? White supremacy, which I mean, all of this is rooted in that. But the idea of why are you so worried about it? Because y'all built this system off our backs because we were we're the ones that created classrooms to be able to teach one another to read because you wouldn't let us. Like, how are we thinking about this where I'm an, I, I'm, I'm a fourth generation HBCU graduate. Ray, please don't say anything smart about HBCUs because I will drag you tomorrow. But hey, look over the shoulder. You know what I'm saying? Come on, come on. The idea that we've been able to do this for our own, right? Why are we? Why do we have to ask for permission to be able to do what we want to do, and make sure that our kids get what they deserve, right? Rosenwald schools, freedom, like freedom, like all the things that we've been able to do to close the gap. How are we thinking about doing those things and then creating and building our own? That is one of the reasons why I'm stepping into this new role. I don't want to think about this for how do we fix or navigate their system. My brain is tired. I'm literally worn out on trying to navigate their systems. 
I'm tired, right? You have police unions that we have to navigate and they're going to move. They're literally going to continue to move the uh, goalpost and change everything every three years. And people aren't, people aren't paying attention. Nobody's thinking about civics in that way. That's the same union. I mean, pretty <laughs> and, and and I hate to say that because I because again it's a broad stroke. Of, you know, there are some amazing teachers who belong to unions, but because it's kind of like they're forced to do so. Yeah. But at the end of the day, how are we thinking about being transformational and being and and being doing this differently? We don't have to do this this way. We've learned that because there are tons of organizations that said, "Oh, you can't work from home." We've had to accommodate for that. So how are we accommodating? How are we thinking about? And that is why I support um, black and brown leaders who decide they want to start their own schools. Yeah. I love that. So listen up. If you are if you're listening to this and you're engaged in this conversation, because these numbers look pretty uh, pr- like, you know, like we got the teacher of the year here and we got the uh, the CEO of the, uh, the incoming CEO of the National yeah. Charter Collector. Uh, like this. Uh, share this. Uh, give us your attention for a couple more minutes while we while we wind down. And so we came up with the fix. But um. I want to protect black women in this space because four years from now, it's going to be another conversation about, it's going to be another conversation about another ed secretary. And we're, de- we're definitely going to have some amazing people that are going to be uh, black females that are going to be vying for this position. Matter of fact, I, I don't even know if vying for this position is, is, the, is the correct terminology because if I'm in a position of, 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 of superintendent, I don't want to be in, I don't want to be an ed secretary. That's, that's a downgrade for me because I'm interacting with, with kids, but that might just be me. But like, how are we going to protect these women? These um, so I'll start as the black woman here and say that we have to start call Like we have to start calling the white women who attack them out, start calling them out. I mean, thankfully, we have a platform that allows us to have direct connect to these people. Um, but I think it is a thing of uh, pushing back. But more importantly, the organizations that have the full leverage and the breath to be able to have that pushback and to say, no, these are the reasons that we support this individual or these individuals. We need to start putting um, putting their feet to the fire and making sure that they're doing all they can. With, I mean, if you look at the big three, just the big three alone, not counting all the other organizations. These people have influence that goes far and beyond what any of us could even imagine. But the, fa- the fact that they're living in silos keeps them from doing that. So one, making sure we call people out when they do racist things. I wanted to use another word and I won't because it's Tuesday, not Wednesday. And two, calling out and, and uh, putting the organizations that should be lifting black women and any qualified black person who is, should be considered for these roles, making sure that they are, are that they're, they're in lockstep to do that collectively, the way that we've seen the Latinx community do for the, the people that were put forth um, that represent them. Hey, you saw it. Hey, listen, they, they had, they had uh, petitions going around. <clears throat> they had, uh, they, they had uh, people meeting with people on Capitol Hill. Literally oh. the teacher, boy, she almost, hey, listen, it was a coordinated effort in order to get that uh, get 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 that and, woman. In, in and the, the sad part, and I'll I'll make this very brief. The sad part is, even if we attempted to show up for the black women who were um, under consideration, if we attempted to show up for them in the same way, we would have been attacked. We they, that would have diminished your own people. Yeah, you and been it would have it would have diminished their their chances at much more. And so I like, got attacked <laughs> for right? supporting my own people. You know, behind mm-hmm. the scenes, I got. Text messages, phone calls, everything about some of the things I was saying. Was you know, so we definitely need to to have these conversations. But me, you know, I'm still a member of the union, you know, because I feel that we need to force this, these unions to have these conversations. You know, shout out to James Featherman, brother. He runs the Virginia Education Association. But we need to start forcing these conversations in these unions. If you claim that you have the backs of black and brown children, of black and brown teachers, we need you to prove it. You know, we need to have these conversations about how your your policies are detrimental to our community. You know, we need to start having conversations about how you allow your members to attack people who just have, think a little bit differently. People that just got one idea, you know, and I know right now I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get attacked nonstop <laughs> the next week. But at the same time, you're going to kick me out of this union, you know, because I feel we need to have these conversations. 
you know, and we're starting to have them. And the good news is some years are seeing memberships decline because they don't want to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So we, we're going to force these conversations, whether they like it or not, because it's really important that we show up for our kids and we show up for these educators that deserve it. You know, I'm going to support the black women who deserve the jobs. I'm going to support anybody who I think can make schools better for our children. Whether kin, as long as they're kinfolk and not yeah. kinfolk. I'm not going to put somebody in front of me that I know spouts the ridiculousness of the white women who don't like black people. So I, I, wrote, I wrote an op-ed a couple weeks ago about the, the, pop, the 55% and the politics of that. You would be surprised. Now, I don't know you'd be surprised, but nope. the number of never, black never. women who came to the aid and attacked me. Woo, child. I mean, <laughs> if any of y'all, Chris Stewart tells this story like a broken record. <laughs> CBC or Congressional Black Caucus um, Foundation's annual legislative um, conference. Randy was speaking in a room. Black women were talking about their, that's their sister. Chris was looking around like, I'm sorry, who are they talking about? Because it can't be her. It can't be. <laughs> and they legitimately are like standing for this woman in a way they're just, I can't understand. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't hey, get so it. We're going to wrap this into your final thoughts. Uh, Rodney, we'll start with you. Uh, give him that National Teacher of the Year energy. Well, I mean, ultimately it goes back to just a simple premise. You know, I say when it comes to education, we should, we got, we need to break it down real simple. Does this benefit all children? You know, there are no set positions in education to me. I don't think you should ever be set in your mindset. You know, when it comes to something, does it benefit kids? If the answer is yes, okay, how do we expand it to benefit all kids? If the answer is no, get rid of it and move on. Too many people have set mindsets. You know, oh, this person's an ed reformer. Oh, this person's pro-charter. Oh, this person is this. Nah, it's does this person have proven results with helping all students learn? And that's really what it all what it all boils down to me. Do, uh, is the school good? Is the school bad? What can we do to make the school better? You know, we, we, we complicate things when we take these firm positions on things before we even understand it. And I bet I used to be one of those people who was, anti-charter, anti-this. That's because in my state, we didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. And so once I got to see the bigger world and understand how things work, how they could be benefit, how they could benefit our community, then my mindset began to change. And so I think as a whole, we need to get out of our classrooms. Teachers, I'm talking to you. Get out of your classrooms. Have conversations with educators, not just in your city, but educators around the nation about what works, what doesn't work. And really, really hold up that mirror and say, am I part of this system that is not working? And what can I do to change it so that it works for all children? I have no alliances to a union. I have no alliance to any leader. Any leader I have who is wrong, I call them out. Your alliance and your only alliance in this game should be to children and parents and their success. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. That uh, part. That part. Um, so I, I, I echo everything Rodney just said. I, again, have not, I've never been an educator in the traditional sense in terms of teaching um, in a classroom. But I do believe that there's education that has to happen and how people understand what all is happening in the education landscape. Um, so one, I think making sure that you're not just thinking about what's happening in your city, but think about if you're visiting a city, is it possible for you to set up uh, tours of a charter school in that city? Um, is it possible for you to uh, have conversations or participate in discussions around um, alternative pathways to education? Um, so expanding, we should all be lifetime learners, right? And it, what, what grinds my gears about all of this is educators are being told how to think, <laughs> what they should be, like how they should be. Like this group think is what we're supposed to be protecting children from, and they're leaning into it. It makes it literally makes no sense to me. Like, why would you want to stay stuck in how you believe or think about something instead of wanting to learn? Like, how are you? Do you know how to pivot? 
right? Like, <laughs> like if I, from my understanding, like you have to do that in the classroom. Why are you not doing that, right? To understand the full landscape instead of this particular set of talking points that somebody has spouted to you and you've been repeating for the last 10 years. It's stupid. <laughs> I mean, like Wednesday night is about to show up and I don't want to Yeah, that. it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so, so my final thoughts for the night, very simple. We got to protect black women. And so, uh, you know, even if we got to protect black women from other black women, we still got to protect black women. Uh, I think it's, it's paramount in terms of uh, the kind of success that we can have uh, on the educational landscape. Uh, although, you know, we didn't get to, to talk about uh, Mr. Miguel. Uh, congrats to him. But I really mm -hmm. wanted that seat to go to a black woman, uh, or, or Afro Latino woman, or, or La somebody that's never been there before. Latino um, woman, Latinx. I don't know what the political direct term is, but I'm not trying to offend anybody. I just wanted it to be, go to a melanated person. Yeah, we A melanated Ooh. woman. All right. So that's my energy for uh for, for, for tonight. Uh, tomorrow night. Uh, at we got a, we got a seven o'clock show. We got an eight o'clock show. Um, at uh, eight o'clock we coming in hot. We're, which, which show is bad at eight? Three times dope. Uh, they 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 are uh, bringing on a, a special guest that was in this conversation, one of the finalists in this conversation. Uh, they're bringing her on tomorrow so that we could um we can talk. Uh, reef trolling Latina women. That's that's what I was. <laughs> what is this guy doing? I mean, he's he's saying what you said because you said Latino. Yeah, 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 I, I did, yeah, I, and I got to see mine is in Spanish. So I mean, there we go. So maybe you need to do Spanish immersion. Maybe. There's a charter school for yeah. that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I want to add on one more thing too. We need to protect black women from black men too, because there's some horrible black male educators out there. Oh God, some things that are really harmful. Well, so we, we need to bring them to the to the table too for this come to Jesus moment. I Ronnie. <laughs> hey, right, right. We need to get you on Wednesday. Hey, you have been listening There's to the Spirit Podcast. Uh thanks for tuning in. Uh we'll we'll, we'll be back with you next week. Peace. Woo. <laughs>